All right. So we're continuing on in our, our sermon series, uh, which is called um, Keep It Simple Saint. Not Keep It Simple Stupid. Keep It Simple Saint. I had um, a Holy Ghost moment this morning. It was about 5.23, and I was just kind of praying over the sermon and saying, God, help me not to mess up. And, and you know, just in the midst of everything that we go through, trying to figure out the mind of God and, and God, what are you doing? What's happening? And I just got this overwhelming sensation that God is trying to do something in our hearts at this time. And I believe that what God is seeking to do with the church is he seeking to shave or sand off the veneer of the church so that he can refinish the work that he wants to. Those of you who are refinishers and that realize that sometimes you take a look at wood and it looks like wood, but there's kind of a coat of varnish or a clear coat or, or whatever lacquer or, or whatever it is that you, you put on it. And it looks like the wood is there, but in order, for, in order for you to be able to do the new work, you need to somehow scrape off or sand off that layer so that God is able to do the work that he needs to do in our church. You know, so it's just that matter of God moving and working and sanding and, and taking off that coat so that he can get to the bare wood of the church's lives. And I believe that God is wanting to do that. And I say, take a look. I took a look at my own life and, you know, all these times where I emphasize, oh, you need to be a good leader. And, you know, the church rises and falls on leadership. And then I realize... The Word of God tells me a whole lot more about following. As a matter of fact, the Word of God doesn't say a whole lot about me and my leadership. But it does say a lot about me and my followership. And before I can be a good leader, I have to be a good follower. And it's not about me asserting my rights. It's about me surrendering my rights. And, 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 it's, and there's a whole bunch of things that somehow get in the way and causes me to say, okay, God, do the work that you need to do because I want to get out of this time. So complete the work of lifting off the facade, of lifting off the varnish, of getting to the wood where you can actually work and move in our lives. And our hope is to keep it simple. I believe that what Jesus calls us to is not complex. It is actually very simple. And just because it's simple, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is always easy. It requires you to be totally submissive to God, and sometimes we will resort to the complex to avoid the simple. Let me say that again. Sometimes we will resort to the complex to avoid the simple. Phariseeism is steeped in this. It is built on this. It is the number one play in their playbook. What happens is you major on minors and you focus on things that aren't important, and may that not be said of me. And may that not be said of you. God, move in our hearts. Speak by your spirit today. Minister in a powerful way, God, as, as we seek out and desire your Holy Spirit in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an article in the Washington Times, January 2019, and it's of a, a tire technician. His name is Corey Scott, and, uh, and he was driving a car just to find out what was wrong with the car. And, and as he's driving uh, down the road, he realizes that there's a car on the side. And it's got his like, flashers on, and he looks, and he sees that there's a woman there hunched over the, the, 
the steering wheel. So he pulls off to the side, and his problem is this. He doesn't know CPR. And so what he does is he says, you know what, I was just watching an episode of The Office. And in The Office, they were trying to train them in CPR. And the pace was all wrong and everything. And so the instructor said this, well, if you're having troubles, you just have to go by the song, Staying Alive. Oh, 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 staying alive, staying alive. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, staying alive, 100 beats a minute. It's 100 beats a minute. That's the suggested level that you do. And so that's what he does. After about a minute or two, she becomes revived. To make the long story short, what happens is the paramedic said, I don't know if this girl would have lived if he hadn't have done that. And it was such an amazing story that caught on that the New York Presbyterian Hospital created a Spotify list of songs to do CPR for. So if you go on Spotify, you can say songs to do CPR for. Now don't do it now. Some interesting songs. Sweet home Alabama, I will survive. I will survive. My favorite is this. Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. <laughs> Funny. If I could be honest and transparent with you for a bit, I found during this time, I have been trying to administer like a self-CPR. Ha, 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 staying alive, staying alive. And as a pastor of this church, I know, and I get a number of calls and people talk and, and listening to the hearts of the people. And sometimes in this, this whole time, that seems like my job is to just somehow implement some form of CPR. Ha, 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 ha. Staying alive. Staying alive. Ha, 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 ha. Staying alive. Well, I can tell, but... No, let's not get into the rest of the song. And we are in incredibly stupid times. Wouldn't you agree? And this week, we're going to be listening to another restrictions podcast that's going to be going through the... The thing, and I really didn't like the last one because what it did is it kind of raised levels of hostility and, and emotion, and, and, and it did more so in the body of Christ than any other time because all of a sudden there was a separation, and there's those people who were vaccinated, and, 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 and so this is my right to be vaccinated, and there's those who weren't vaccinated, and, and they're fearful and, and have their own set of emotions, and, and I believe that there's a right to choose, and, but the antagonism. It's just kind of big. It's kind of there all the time. And there's a part of you in a temptation that says, let's just not talk about it. Let's see if we can ignore it until it goes away. But it's the worst thing to do. You know, there's people who are coming to me and saying, you know, Pastor, I got this exemption form. If you could sign it for me. But as a fellowship, we believe in vaccination. You know, but we also believe that, you know, you want to be free. And so there's this kind of, this thing that's kind of floating around. And, and I want to be able to continue to provide a series, where, a, a, a service where everyone contend. And, and I don't know what's going to happen this week, how that's all going to turn out. But as long as I can, I want to have a service where everybody can attend. And, and yet at the same time, I know that there's people who, um, who don't come to the service. And many of them are Christian. And many of them have extenuating circumstances. And many of them have children that have extenuating circumstances. And they say, so I just can't at this time. If there's, there's other people. And, and so the, the, the emotional level on one side is just as high as the emotional level on the other. And, 
And, uh, you know, I said, well, what about the, the unsaved world or the, 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 the church who mostly is all vaccinated? And, and how do we somehow minister to them? And, and is there a way that we can provide an opportunity and a way for that? And, and pastor, are you going to ever have just a vax service? Oh, I, I know we're going to always try and provide a service for everybody who is here, whether you're vaccinated or not, you know. But there's another service that maybe we can create where vaccinated people can go to it. Yeah, maybe I will. I don't know. I'm not too sure. Last thing is this. I'm not going to straddle. I'm not going to compromise. We're going to pray as hard as we possibly can. Any decision that we make is, is very much prayed over and sought over, trusting in, in the work of the Holy Spirit um, to somehow um, move. So what's your opinion? Um, I'm sick of opinion. I'm absolutely sick of opinion. And the last thing I'm going to throw on it and call it preaching the word. I think if we need to do anything at this time is we need to preach the word. What exactly does the word say? And how does that apply to our lives? And that is the backdrop. This is the tenuous waters through which I present to you one of the most popular parables in scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke um, chapter 10. Now you may not realize this, but Luke, the author Luke, wrote two books of the Bible. He writes the Gospel of Luke, he writes the book of Acts. And on a pure volume basis, that takes up, constitutes 27.5% of the New Testament. You can't disclude Luke. To disclude Luke, you're throwing away one quarter of the New Testament. It is the strongest historical account in the gospel. He is the only Gentile, non-Jewish writer of the gospels. It is written third, and it was written third of all the gospels. And because of his background, like there's totally different emphasis. He highlights the humanity side of Jesus, and he's got many stories that others don't. You know, he just had this, this fact where he showed where Jesus just loved the outcasts, Tells the story of the sinner at the altar beating his chest. He talks about the stories of the, of the lepers. The road to Emmaus story at the end of the, the, the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's only talked about in Luke. And of all the authors, he's the most charismatic. He has the strongest charismatic theology of all. And for those of us who are Pentecostal, we're saying, yeah, perfect. Let's listen to him. And the Luke Gospel contains the largest number of parables, 24 parables in Luke. And 18 of those parables are unique. So of those 24 parables, 18 are only in the book of Luke. And amongst them are probably the two most popular in the Bible, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. If you don't have Luke... You don't have the prodigal son story. You're reading the whole passage once. I wanted to kind of dissect it if I could. Just wanted to do things a little bit different as we go. And trust that God will speak to your heart today. So let's start off with the cause. And the cause kind of goes like this. And we're reading from the book of Luke, verse 25. And it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my brother? Interesting story. Most of us have read this passage of scripture a number of times. So this isn't new to most of us. But sometimes we forget in this particular passage the underlying question. The question underlying, overall question is this. How do I get to heaven? Sometimes we think the, the, the underlying question is, who is my neighbor? Well, that's the secondary one. What this lawyer was actually asking is this. How do I get to heaven? It's kind of interesting when you think about it. And this is not the first time this has happened. Many times this happened to Jesus. Take a look at John 3. He was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the same came to Jesus by night and said, you know, goes into a conversation. Another one's this one person who's called a rich young ruler. We see it a couple times in the Gospels. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, how do, I, how do I make it to heaven? Jesus says, you know, do all these things. Well, I've done this inside you. He says, okay, one more thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the Lord. And so what happens in all these instances... These Pharisees, who were the elite, asking Jesus this question, how do I get to heaven? And many times they leave extremely, simplifies it, and they don't really like it a whole lot. And on this particular occasion, the religious man asked a pointed question, who is my neighbor? Now, think of this. He's not asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. He's not doing the, asking this because he's inquisitive. He's asking this because he's arrogant. Who is my neighbor? And when you ask the question, who is my neighbor, you automatically ask the secondary question is this, who is not my neighbor? And so what he was doing, he was trying to put a dividing line in this. And, and I could, it, we could go into a number, uh, a number of, of, take a little while to describe exactly what they were thinking, the Pharisees at that time. But to make it simple, what they believed was that their neighbor was a fellow Jewish person. Because their scriptures would say, well, I hate who you hate and God you don't like. You know? And so he goes into this, the, the, going to this thought and, and the thought is, well, I like Jewish people, Hebrew people, but I want Hebrew people who, who are not heretics and are not apostate people. So in other words, to this Jewish individual, to this lawyer, he says this. In his head, and I think Jesus knows this. My neighbor are fellow Jewish people who believe the same thing I do and who act the same way I do. And so this is kind of the context with which he does it. And so, so as we get into the next part, which is the context, let me just read on the story. He says, in, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I'm not too sure exactly what half dead looks like. But anyways, a priest happens to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came there, the man was, and saw him, and he took pity on him. And when he saw him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And, and when he had put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii 
gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense that you might have. Now, for those of you who don't know the picture, Jerusalem to Jericho is approximately 17 miles. It's a 17-mile walk downhill, 3,300 feet. And not only that, it is desert. It's rocky desert. There's lots of twists and turns. It is, it is a dangerous walk. And there are many places along the walk that you are very much vulnerable. And it's very much narrow. And that's an important thing to look at when we're looking at this passage of Scripture. So if someone was beaten, if someone was, was unclothed, if someone was left for dead... There would be no place to get water. There would be no place to get food. There would be no place. There was no hospitals. There was no care places at that particular time. And many times along this route, and I would imagine it would be a narrow route because you would have to be in a place where they could gather you. And it was probably in a place that was so narrow that to avoid a person like this, you would almost have to step over them. It wasn't like it was a highway. If you saw that person there, you couldn't miss him. And so this is kind of the, the scenario that they're doing. And people are familiar with this story, but many times don't grasp the point of the story. Because many people think this. Well, this story is about being kind and loving to one another. And there's that aspect, and it's a very virtuous thing. But that's not really what this passage um, is about. And at this point, we come to the complexity of the matter. Because there's two people that come first. One is a priest, kind of highly regarded the Levite, the kind of guy that kind of ran what was happening in the temple as well, they both come by. These guys have high credentials and, and they're wonderful, but for some reason, they kind of walk by. It's not a fact that says they kind of get on the other side. They do everything they can to avoid. The main reason, and if you've been a person that has heard this message before or you have read or studied this particular passage, there's one main reason why they didn't do it. That there was something in the Jewish law that said that if you touched a dead body then you became defiled. You became dirty. And so therefore, you could no longer practice in the temple. And so as they, as they went and walked, they observed this. Now, there are a whole lot more scriptures that say this. You need to love the stranger. In Micah chapter 6, it says you need to do justice and walk humbly with your God. He says you need to help those people who are in need. But for some reason, those seem to be trumped by the other one. And so they walk, and, and it's, a, it's a tribute to the fact that sometimes the complexity of faith becomes more important than the need to give. And let me just say something here. If your purity hinders you from helping someone in need then your faith has become too complex. Another thing is this. If your prejudice hinders you from helping someone else in need, it is too complex. If you're sitting there and saying, well, this person doesn't believe the same thing I do, or this person doesn't have the same orientation that I do, or, or this person is absolutely a sinner, they probably deserve being where they are. If all of a sudden that trumps everything, then all of a sudden your faith has become too complex. The other one is this. If your prim and proper piety hinders you from helping someone in need, it is probably too complex. 
If you're so worried about being dirty or being inconvenienced, something has weighed in your faith. And lastly, the other one is this. If the preoccupation of your faith hinders you from helping someone in need, it's too complex. If practicing your faith, if, if doing all the routines has somehow gotten in the way that you just kind of forgot about caring about people, it becomes a difficult thing. But on the other hand, what Jesus does, and purposefully does it, he chooses a hero, which is the most unlikely. The very existence of Samaritans just disgusted the Jewish people. When he said Samaritan, I could just imagine them spitting on the ground saying, oh, no, a Samaritan. If you take a look at history, you know, the Jews considered Samaritans half-breed traitors, basically. Half-breed traitors. And for centuries before and for centuries after, if you take a look through history and some of the letters that were written and stuff, even 200 years after Jesus' ministry, there's writings about how Jewish people felt about Samaritans. And all of a sudden, this is the one who talks about compassion. Now, he gives a really good picture of what the foundation of compassion is about. And it says this, compassion is, first of all, conscious. It says, when he came upon him, he saw him. And kind of, we look past that passage. But in order to have compassion, you first have to see the need. Well, that should be obvious, but many times it's not. Many times we are so overwhelmed with our own agenda. We're so encumbered by things that it could very well be that you are sitting beside somebody who's going through an extremely difficult time. And it's at the worst that they may be in their life, and we don't even know. And here's the thing. Compassion has eyes. Or compassion many times has a radar that is continually looking for people who are in need. Well, how to become compassion? First thing you need to do is you need to take a look. Not only that, compassion is caring. No, I'm not too sure. I can't say for sure. But they probably didn't have those little red first aid kits with them. You know the kind you have in your car? And you say, well, if someone got in an accident, I'd have a Band-Aid for them to help them. You ever, you ever look at those first aid kits? He didn't have it. So what did he use? He probably used his own clothes. He probably tore up things of his own. And not only that, he had to lift this guy up who was half dead, which means he probably was dead weight, up onto a donkey. And instead of riding into town, he has to walk, let's say it's halfway, probably nine miles in the desert to take care of this individual. If compassion is one thing, it's not remote. It's something which is hands-on. Not only that, compassion is courageous. And, and you know, we don't get this part, the courageous part. But think about this. What would have happened if he met up with a Jewish caravan and here he is walking with a half-dead Jewish individual on his, on his um, saddle? One commentator said this way. You need to equate this then in the Wild West days where they had the native people with the, with the cowboys together and that. It would be equivalent to some, some native person going into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy over his saddle. That what would it be like. And sometimes compassion needs to be courageous. I'm amazed at, at people who do courageous, compassionate things and just get knocked down and they get criticized and things like that. And maybe most of all, compassion is committed. This guy was committed. 
How do you know he was committed? He said he gave two denarii. Now, there was in archaeology around that time a board that was discovered, which was a sign for an inn, and it said that a night at an inn was one thirty-second of a denarii. So, two denarii means that he gave this guy two months hotel stay. And then he says after that, well, if he stays any longer, if he needs any more help, come back and I will pay you. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible, don't you think? And the thing that we missed in this particular passage was what he was saying was like awestruck. As they were listening to this, he said, well, first of all, I hate this guy. Second of all, he probably hated me. And not only that, he's paying two months and then coming back and maybe even having to pay more. And, and, and like this was over the top. This was lavish. This was extravagant love that was taking place. And this was a difficult process for which he had to go. But let's get to the crux. This is the last part here, if I could. What's the point of the story? Let's read the last part of it. It says this. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, the one had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And within a second, Jesus kind of changes the question, doesn't he? It's not doesn't go from who is my neighbor, it becomes, am I a good neighbor? Who has become the good neighbor is basically what he says. And, and so what Jesus replies this, he says, go and do likewise. In other words, go and do this continually, and you will have eternal life. Remember, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how do I get into heaven? And so the response of this lawyer was absolutely nothing. And you ask, what should his response should have been? The response that he should have had was this. Jesus, I can't do that. Are you kidding me? To actually go and minister to someone who I have been sworn to hate. And you know what? You can tell that he hates him because when he says, who's the one who has become the neighbor? <laughs> he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who had compassion on him. He didn't even want to say the Samaritan. Isn't that funny? But he says, this is impossible for me to do. God, you have got to help me with this. And he stood in front of the one person who could actually help him. And he walked away just like the other people who asked him about eternal life did. And all of a sudden it draws us to the question because we ask ourselves to the question, can we do something like that? Oh yeah, I'm sure I could. Well, not on a continued basis you can't. The same thing is upon us because if you take a look at your life, you're probably more like the priest and you're probably more like the Levite than you care to believe. And if the thought is this, oh, I gotta do better, I gotta be kinder, then you've missed the point. If your point is this, God, I can't do this. This is way too difficult for me. I need to trust in you. Then you will leave this place this morning, not with shame and guilt, saying, I'll never get this right, and trying to make an effort that you'll never get to. Instead, what you'll say is this, God, I surrender to you. 
God, I give you absolutely everything because I can't do it. But if I submit to you, if you become part of me, living in me, then maybe somewhere along the line, I might be able to be like this person. Wow. And it becomes part of the fact that the idea is not calculating the limits of love. The idea is, am I concerned for hurting people? Whether you are young or whether you are old, whether you are male, whether you are female, whether you are new to this faith or whether you are a vet, whether you are veteran to this faith, whether you're Baptist, whether you're Methodist, whether you're Pentecostal, whether you're vaccinated, or whether you're not vaccinated. Huh, 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 huh. Staying alive. Staying alive. I got one story I want to tell you, and I've heard variations of the story, and I wanted to get the true version. I think the truest form of the version is, is told by um, Randy Elkhorn, who wrote The Treasure Principle, and he was talking to this from a missionary uh, who had told him this story. There was a, a time in Vanilla where there was a, um, in, in Manila, Philippines, where there was a businessman, and he, he has to go in, a, in a, a complex downstairs, and there's this little street boy who was there, and Street boy approaches to him and says, listen, mister, I will guard your car, your beautiful car, uh, while you go in there. If you, if, and he says, well, okay, well, deal. I have to go in there. And so, you know, a couple hours later, he comes out, and the boy is still there guarding his car. And so he gives him whatever spare change he has and is about to go. And, and the boy was bold. He says, gee, mister, that is a great car. I don't know if I've seen the nicest car as that. He says, how do you get that? Did somebody give that car to you? He says, as a matter of fact, my brother gave me this car as a gift. And so he gets in to, to go, and, and the boy kind of says, I wish. So this guy kind of, at this point, just as you and I would, would kind of visualize the words he's going to say. I wish I had a brother like that, but that's not what he said. He said, I wish I could be a brother like that. And... And this guy is kind of touched by this whole statement. And he looks at the boy and says, you ever ridden a car like this? And he says, no, I haven't. He says, well, get in. I'll take you for a ride. And so he's having to take him for a ride, and he's going to have to take, put the window down because the smell of this street child is there. And he says, listen, he says, we're right near my home. Can I kind of go and can we, can we give my brother a ride as well. He would love it. And so he's thinking, well, he's trying to show off the fact that he's in this, you know, in the slums and he's being driven around in this, this white car. And so he gets out and goes down this alley, this dirty alley comes and he's carrying his brother on his back. Kind of plops him in a seat and he says, well, what happened? this is your brother, is it? What happened to your brother? He says, well, he had an accident. He can't walk. So we're not too sure exactly what it is. I don't think he's ever going to be able to walk in. But I want him to come and see everything that I've been able to see and, and listen. So as he's driving, he says, hey, listen, my brother's a doctor. Why don't we take him to the doctor? So they take him, and after a minor exam, they figure out there is a procedure that can actually cause him to be able to walk again. They couldn't afford it. So he ends up having the surgery and he ends up being able to walk again. And the operation was performed. And the little boy who could not walk 
but had a brother who loved him, was able to walk again. Simply because of a statement that says this. Now, I wish I had a brother like that. But I wish I could be a brother like that. I wish I could be a father like that. I wish I could be a mother like that. I wish I could be a work partner with someone like that. God, move in our hearts. God, help us to not make it so complex that we don't see the opportunity that we have. God, sand off the veneer. Sand off the things that we think are important. Get to the wood of my heart so you can do the work that you need to do. Holy Spirit, move in a powerful way. God, you need to move in a powerful way. I wish I had answers. But while I'm looking for wisdom from you, I want to be true to your word. I pray, God, that you will challenge us, Father, with the thought and not to leave this place feeling ashamed or guilty or inadequate, but surrendered. Surrendered to a God who wants to do great things through us. May you be high and lifted up. May you be glorified. And I give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's continue the conversation online. Visit us at BethelBrandon.ca or follow us on Facebook. Thank you.